Please pray with me. Father above, I pray that we would see your son's ministry on our behalf. And I pray that in seeing it, our faith would be strengthened, our love kindled, and our desire to follow you would be inflamed. Amen. So we are moving out of James today. For the next seven weeks or so, the lectionary readings, the epistle readings in the lectionary will have us in the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to actually be tracing the book of Hebrews together. We're going to be staying in it for a couple of months. My encouragement to y'all is to actually take these two months to meditate on the book of Hebrews in your own life. It's a book worth spending two months on. It's a beautiful book. It's perhaps the most Jewish book of the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it, but we know that whoever he or she was, he was an incredibly articulate and well-educated Greek-speaking Jew. Its Greek style is by far the best of the New Testament. It's absolutely exquisite. But what surpasses even its style is its theological depth and richness. The author was absolutely fluent in the Old Testament. And the book itself is a prolonged meditation on Leviticus and Psalms particularly. The author looks at these two books and sees them again through the life of Jesus and exposits the scripture for his congregation. Like I said, we don't know who wrote it. People have put forward the name Barnabas. It makes sense. People have put forward the name Apollos. This makes sense as well. People have put forward the names Priscilla and Aquila. The couple who taught Apollos makes sense as well. We don't know. We do know, though, that it was written to a congregation who, in the words of one commentator, was experiencing a crisis of faith and a failure of nerve. And that is going to be the key for us as we step into this book. The fact that the congregation was experiencing a crisis of faith, a failure of nerve. This particular book is basically a sermon encouraging them to keep the faith, to persevere, to hold fast. In order to encourage them, the author meditates on who Jesus is as the Messiah, particularly what it means that he is high priest and what it means that he is ruler of all. This is why he spends so much time working through Leviticus, meditating on Jesus as your high priest. You can tell that his hope is that by showing who Jesus is, by showing the people what he's actually done, this congregation might have the guts, the courage to stick the faith out, to hold on. He's hoping that they will see Jesus in his glory so that they hang on in a tough time. His call, effectively, cling to the ministry of Jesus. Cling to what he has done for you. And that is going to be an important point for us. The difficulty that this congregation was facing is pretty clear. It's pretty clear from the letter that this was a group of Jewish Christians. And the Jewish Christians in the first couple of generations didn't have it easy. They lived in a no-man's land. They didn't fit the culture of Rome. They were frequently persecuted by the Romans because they were viewed as antisocial, unpatriotic. But they also no longer fit the Jewish synagogues 
And so they were caught in this place where they had nowhere to turn. They were the odd man out in culture and frequently buffeted from both sides. And so the temptation that this congregation faced, and this is clear from within the letter, is to go back to Judaism, to go back to this place that's safe. The Romans thought the Jews were weird, but they didn't persecute them. It was much safer to be a Jew than it was to be a Jewish Christian. And living in this no man's land was difficult. These external pressures were pushing them back towards the old covenant. And so the author spends 13 chapters in this sermon revolving around the superiority of the new covenant to the old, the superiority of Jesus to the old covenant. So he compares Jesus to Moses, showing that Jesus is superior. Jesus to the Levitical priesthood, showing that Jesus is superior. Jesus to the Jerusalem itself, Jesus to the law, comparing Jesus to the aspects of the old covenant to say, this one, Jesus Christ, this is God's final and superior word. To go backwards from him is to lose everything. So the book is a call to cling to Jesus. It's a book that has an enormous amount to say to us. I don't think that I'm wrong in this, but I doubt that anyone in here is facing the temptation to go back to Judaism. This book still, though, has a lot to say to us because it's a book that confronts people in the midst of cultural pressures that make keeping the faith difficult. This is where it's going to touch home for us. Even though we don't experience the call to go back to Judaism, the sort of safe haven that it would have meant for these people, we still see Christians all around us experiencing that crisis of faith and that failure of nerve. There are pressures coming from various sides that are pushing people from the church. I'm not the only one, I guess, who knows of people who have walked away from the faith. There are people who, are, who have deconverted. Their stories hit the news. There are people who are experiencing a crisis of faith right now. And this book has a lot to say to us. The pressures are different, like I said. But we still oftentimes find ourselves the odd man out in culture. We find people who actually say, I just can't do it anymore. It's too hard to be a Christian. Even for those of us who say, no, I stick with this, I hold the faith. How many days does it feel like an uphill battle? How many days does it feel like walking upstream in culture to be the weird one, to be the different one? Because culture, of course, views some of our beliefs as strange and odd. Culture looks at what we think about sin, particularly sexual sin, and say, y'all don't love people. It's hard to live when people look at you and say, you're not loving, you're authoritarian, this or that. Our belief in a transcendent yet imminent God who's absolutely holy and yet fiercely loving, jealous for his creation, who deserves to be worshipped and glorified, who deserves to be honored and obeyed, that belief by many is seen as irrational, old-fashioned, ridiculous, and silly. In other words, we face pressure external to us to soften the belief, to let go of the distinctions. We face those same pressures, even though they look different in our age. But it's not just the pressures from the outside. If we're honest, there's pressures from the inside, too. After all, the church has been guilty of hurting 
and harming and abusing people. And there are people within the church who are experiencing a crisis of faith because of the way they've been treated or because of the way leaders in the church have covered up that treatment. The hypocrisy undercuts the faith of people. There's other pressures. There's the internal pressure that comes from within. We live in a culture that believes that happiness and personal fulfillment are the highest goods of all. It's actually easy for Christians even to let that desire to be fulfilled and to be happy creep above God on the priority list. To let Christianity be one aspect of our life rather than the defining aspect. And in that moment, it's easy for us to begin to distort the faith, to create a false God, a God who might be therapist or benefactor, but who hardly has the right to command absolute obedience on our life. My point, and I could go into other ones, but my point is we have pressures around us and within us that make it difficult to keep the faith. We have Christians around us who are experiencing that crisis of faith, that failure of nerve, whether it's because of the disaster in their own families or in their churches or just their own struggles. There are people all around us going through this. And perhaps it's some of us saying, this is just too difficult to believe. In other words, we need the book of Hebrews. We need this book because it confronts head on this, what do you do when you're in a point where it's difficult to believe? What do you do when it seems like too much to keep going in your faith? We need this book. Its message is just as timely for us as it was for its original audience. We need its insistence that we keep the faith. We need its definition of what it means to keep the faith, lest we distort the faith into something of our own making to make it easier to keep. We need its insistence that we keep gathering to worship, that this matters. We need its insistence that we keep gathering at the table of the Lord to eat his meal and receive his grace. We need its insistence that we actually let the word of God pierce our own hearts, that we don't wall ourselves off and make ourselves numb. We need its insistence that we let our hearts remain soft so that the word cuts between us, dividing us, revealing what is there. We need its insistence that God keeps its promises. For many of y'all, that may be the point where it touches home most. It's insistence that God keeps his promises. But above all, we need its, its insistence that we have Jesus Christ as a champion of our salvation. And really, this is the point of the whole book. We need to hear it saying over and over and over that Jesus Christ is the champion of your salvation, that he has tasted death for everyone, that he has conquered the devil and the power of death, that he's been crowned with glory and honor, and that all things are subjected to his him, and one day we will see him return with all things in subjection to him, coming with a new city that the Father has built for those who hold the faith. We need this book, and I'm thankful that we'll be in it for these seven weeks. As I said, Hebrews is comparing Jesus throughout to the Old Covenant, to Moses, to the Levitical priesthood, to the law, to the promised land, to Jerusalem. 
It's like an extended exposition of the major themes of the New Testament, constantly looking at them and comparing them to Jesus and showing that Jesus fulfills them and supersedes them. But this extended exposition of the major themes of the Old Testament is interspersed with strong exhortations to keep the faith. And in chapter 2, where we begin, we step into the midst of one of those strong exhortations. In verse 1, we hear the author saying, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He compares the word of God given in Jesus the gospel to the Old Testament law. And if you miss the reference, it's because we're unfamiliar with the Jewish belief that the law on Mount Sinai was mediated between God and Moses by angels. You'd be forgiven if you've never heard this. It's an obscure old Jewish belief. It shows up three times in the New Testament and three times in these sort of oblique references. There were angels present on Mount Sinai. Moses says that in Deuteronomy. One of the Psalms says that. Both Peter, I mean, both the writer of Hebrews and Paul make mention of the fact that it was angels who were actually acting almost as intermediaries between God and Moses in that moment helping Moses understand what's going on, giving the law to Moses from God, translating as it were. And so you'd be forgiven if you'd missed the reference here that this thing given by angels, declared by angels, refers to the Old Testament law. But his comparison is pretty obvious. If in the Old Testament law, somebody who rejected it received punishment, we have a greater thing than the Old Testament law. So what do you think happens if you reject that? His comparison, the exhortation is clear. This is greater than the Old Testament law. Therefore, you have to pay even more attention to this than they were required to pay to the Old Testament law. Cling to the gospel. The exhortation is brief, but it's clear. In verse 5, he actually steps back into an exposition of Scripture. We didn't read chapter 1, but throughout chapter 1, the writer had been concerned to show that Jesus was superior to angels. Now, y'all probably go, that's weird. Why does he need to show that Jesus is superior to angels? Of course he's superior to angels. But there was a belief running around in the first century in Jewish quarters, particularly associated with the community at Qumran. There was a belief running around that in the new kingdom, the whole thing would be subjected to the rule of one chief angel, that an angel would sit at the top of the heap. And so the writer of Hebrews opens in chapter 1 with this clear word that the Son The Messiah is superior to angels. In other words, the Messiah is at the top of the heap. And this belief that things would be subjected to a ruling angel is why he goes to great pains in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2 to say, no, things have been subjected to Jesus Christ. He is superior. He offers proof of the fact that all things will be subjected to him in this. And his subtlety is actually hard for us to follow at times, his exposition of Scripture. But he takes Psalm 8, the one that we prayed together this morning, and he said there's three movements in Psalm 8. There's a movement of God making man lower than the angels. And then there's a movement of man being crowned with glory and honor. And then there's a movement in the next order of all things being subjected to man. And he takes these in a linear fashion, and he says, look, 
We've seen two of the three happen. He was made lower than angels. Secondly, he is in the ascension, been crowned with glory and honor. This means that that third step in that movement, that all things will be subjected to him, is coming true and has come true. He's answering the objection of the Jew who says, how can the Messiah be superior to angels? He got killed. They can't be killed. And his point is, it's true. You saw him made lower than the angels for a period. You saw him lowered to the point of death. But don't think that's because he's inferior. This is a part of the movement that leads to him ruling over all things. To go below the angels, to be crowned with glory and honor, and then all things to be subjected to him. He was lowered so that he might taste death for everyone. But now, all things are being subjected to him because he has been elevated He acknowledges in verse 9 that we don't see all things subjected to him. This is the end of verse 8, excuse me. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Life is still difficult. Things feel out of control. We don't see everything subjected to him yet. But the proof is from Psalm 8. If the pattern is lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, all things in subjection to him, the order Psalm 8 presents it. And if we've seen the first two filled, we can bank on the third. Remember, Hebrews is a book about God keeping his promises. And his point is that all things are being subjected to him. It is true because we've seen the first two parts fulfilled. In verse 10, He takes the fact that Jesus is lowering, that he was made man, that he suffered, that he takes the death. He takes that and he begins to develop it as the theme of the next section. And this is actually where I want to dwell. If I've gone quickly thus far, forgive me, but it's only so that I could have a few minutes to linger in these verses. If you have questions about the preceding points, don't hesitate to ask. His lowering... His lowering to the point of death, his suffering, this becomes the theme of verses 10 through 18. Commentaries call this something like the solidarity of the Messiah with mankind. This little passage, the solidarity of the Messiah with mankind. And it's actually a good title. If you look at verse 11a, it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. One source. Mankind. He comes from the same stock as us. If you look at verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, the solidarity of the Messiah with mankind, he partook of our flesh and blood. If you look at 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, the solidarity of the Messiah with mankind made like us in every respect. And in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. His solidarity is so great that he even suffers our same temptations. His point, the eternal word of God was lowered below the angels, not because he was inferior. This is something that I want to sink into the depths of our hearts. He was lowered below the angels not because he was inferior, but he was lowered below the angels so that he could become one with us in complete solidarity with us. He was lowered so that he could become one 
with the human race. And the result of him becoming one with the human race is the fact that, and this is verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He becomes one with the human race so that he would not be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Imagine that. Imagine that the Lord is not actually ashamed to call you brother, you sister. Imagine that he looks at you and he says, I delight to call you brother and sister. This is the result of him becoming one with the human race, is that he can look at us and he can say, I delight to call you my brother. There's no gap between us. There is no distance between us. There is no, I am better than you. I delight to call you my brother. That's the result of him becoming one with the human race. In verse 14, he gives another result of him becoming one with the human race, and that is that he actually could partake of his de- our death. Unless he became one with us, he could not partake of our death. But he came and became one with us so that he could partake of our death. And when he partook of our death, when Satan applied the power of death to the Son of God, it broke He came to partake of our death, to break the system of death, to break the power of death. In verse 17, we see another result of him becoming one with us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He did this so that he could become our high priest. And in verse 18, we see another result, that because he became one with us in our temptation, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I want to slow down just enough for y'all to hear the emphasis of the author. Because Hebrews wants you to see that the Lord Jesus was made lower than the angels. He went to the very bottom of the heap. But he went to the very bottom of the heap. He went to our station. He went to our nature. He became like us in every respect, not because he was inferior, but he did it for our advantage so that he could call us brother and sister so that he could actually break the bondage of death over us, so that he could be high priest to us, so that he could help us in our temptation. He was lowered, but he was lowered for us. The whole section in verse 10 begins with a beautiful phrase. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting. I love this. It was fitting that God would do it this way. It fit his character. It fit his desires. You know, when someone does something that's exactly in their nature, and you say, of course they did that. It's just like them to do it that way. That's what he's saying about God. It was just like him to do it this way. Remember the story that we just told? that he was lowered to the very bottom so that he could become one with us. And the writer's saying, it was just like God to do it that way. It was just like him. I mean, that's the way he works. He sees humanity down on the bottom of the pit, corrupted, full of sin, and all sorts of mess, completely devoid of everything good, and under the penalty of death. And he says, and it was just like God to say, I'm going to jump down in that pit with him. I'm going to go down to the bottom. It was fitting that he would do it. It was beautiful. It was just like God. There's so many things that we could dwell on here. The fact that he desires to lead many sons to glory. This is beautiful. That description in Psalm 8, going down to the bottom, being elevated with glory and honor, and going up in subjection, all things under him. That's not just about the Messiah. 
That's the path for all of humanity who follow the Messiah. There's so many things leading many sons to glory is what he says. We could dwell all over the place here. But lest I keep you all day, I want to sort of rein myself into one particular phrase. And it's the one that I want to close with. It's the phrase that it was fitting. It was fitting that God make the founder, the pioneer, the champion of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's the phrase, make him perfect through suffering, that I want to end with. It wasn't that Jesus was imperfect. It wasn't that he was incomplete. God, who knew no suffering, God is devoid of suffering. He's perfect in and of himself. There is no incompleteness. But the God who is perfect and absolutely perfectly complete in all things said, I will fill myself up yet still more. I will perfect myself yet still more. In Jesus Christ, I will add something to myself that is not previously known. And what did he add to himself that was not previously known? Suffering. Can you imagine that? The God who knows no lack, who is perfect, absolutely complete, says, I will add something to myself that I have not previously known. And what does he choose to add? Suffering. Jesus was made perfect, made complete in suffering. Into the heart of God was brought the suffering of humanity. He made himself perfect in suffering. The God who lacked nothing, who had all things, said, I would take one more thing, and I will hold yet one more thing in my heart. And it is your suffering that he said I would take into my heart. The beauty and the power of this phrase is astounding. He became perfect and complete and suffering. There's more actually going on in this phrase. I said at the beginning that the writer of Hebrews is one of the most sophisticated writers in the New Testament, absolutely beautiful in his style and absolutely fluent in old, the Old Testament. And every single phrase has layers upon layers. And even below this layer of God who knew no lack filled himself up still more with our suffering in Jesus Christ. Even below that, there is a deeper layer going on. Because Hebrews is a meditation on the book of Leviticus. The entire book revolves around the day of atonement, as it were. Jesus is our high priest cleansing our corruption. It's a meditation on the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, this word, to be made perfect, is the word they use for ordination. It's startling. You can go back and look at Leviticus 8, a couple other places. The word for a priest being ordained in Leviticus is to be made perfect. He goes on in this passage to talk about Jesus as high priest, and so it's not a stretch to know he's referring to Jesus' ordination ceremony when he says he was made perfect through suffering. He actually comes back and he emphasizes the exact same point in chapter 5, again talking about Jesus as high priest and talking about his being made perfect through suffering. He's talking about his ordination ceremony in the language of Leviticus. He's saying, in light of Leviticus, it was fitting that God would ordain him as high priest through suffering. The path for his ordination was to walk through suffering. The requirements for his ordination were to walk through our suffering. This is something that I actually want to end with and just meditate on for a moment. You can ask anyone ordained in the Anglican church, 
that the path to ordination is long and difficult. Michael's is next week. It's a long path. There's a lot of steps. But I can tell you this much. I didn't have to suffer all the sufferings of humanity to get to this point. That was not the path laid on my shoulders to be ordained. The path laid on the shoulders of the Son of God to get to the place of his ordination was to walk through the full scope of humanity's sufferings. This was the route, the path that he took, was to walk through the sufferings of humanity. And because he took that path, the Father ordained him as high priest for us. To be your priest, he walked the path of suffering. To be high priest for you, he walked through all of the tears and the pain that the world has produced. He was willing to let all of the suffering, all the pain that the world has created, invade his heart. He went through that so that he could stand before the Father on your behalf. Because this is, of course, what a priest does. Stand before God on behalf of others. And then the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that he, to stand before the Father on your behalf, walk through the veil of suffering, walk through the shadow of death. What does a priest do as he stands before the Father? He offers cleansing sacrifice for sin so that the pollution that weighs down your heart would no longer be there. He offers sacrifice before the Father, and Hebrews later describes Jesus going into the presence of the Father with the sacrifice that is his own body and offering it to him and it being received by the Father. For the privilege of being able to cleanse you of your sins, he said, I will walk through the suffering of the world. So that I might cleanse you of your pollution, I will walk through the suffering of the world. What does a priest do? A priest leads others into the presence of God, and Hebrews goes on to tell us just a chapter and a half later that we can draw near to the throne of grace because this priest who stands on our behalf, how much did he care that you would stand in the presence of the Father? So much that he said, I will walk through all the suffering of the world to be ordained for the privilege of ushering you into the presence of the Father. You see how consequential it is when we say, "Ah, it doesn't matter if I go today. It doesn't matter if I bend the knee before the Father today. It doesn't matter if I pray. The Son is saying, I walk the path of suffering so that I could be ordained, so that I could draw you into the presence of the Father. Come with me. Let me be your priest. We'll find out later that we actually come into the presence of the Father through the torn veil that is the very flesh of Jesus Christ. This is the gate, the entryway. He goes as our priest so that we would be led to glory. This is what the priest wants, is to usher us all the way to glory. All this and more, Hebrews tells us, is what our priest does. There's one role, though, that I want to close with. One more role that the high priest takes. One of the jobs of the high priest is to intercede for his people. This is what a priest is called to do. In Hebrews 7.25, we actually hear the phrase that Jesus lives to make intercession for us as our high priest. The high priest intercedes for his people. That means that Jesus, as we speak, is actually interceding for you. He's actually praying for you right now, interceding for you on your behalf. In the great struggles of life, he is actually praying for you. 
and the great points of failure and collapse, he is actually interceding for you in your weaknesses, in the places of frustration and even self-loathing. He is interceding for you. Jesus, as our priest, is actually sitting there praying for you as you stumble or even run headlong into sin, pleading and interceding on your behalf. And again, going back to that phrase, made perfect, being ordained. For the very privilege of praying for you, he was willing to walk through the path of suffering. Is this not a beautiful ministry? Is this not a powerful ministry? We spent the last few weeks in James. And in James, we heard that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. There has never been a righteous man like Jesus Christ. If the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, Imagine what his intercession will accomplish on your behalf. It may not come as fast as you want. God's time is not our time. But his prayer will not fail. He walked the path of suffering so that he could intercede on your behalf as high priest. And his prayers are never unanswered. They never fail. And so as you hit moments where you say, this is just too much. Life is too overwhelming. I can't keep going. Remember that your priest is praying for you. And remember that his prayers will never fail. Remember that he was willing to walk the veil of suffering for the very privilege of praying those prayers for you. And let that strengthen your faith. Amen.